in Genesis. We read it in Genesis 1. And then you read about the fall of mankind when Adam and Eve sinned and were banished from the Garden of Eden. That actually God didn't have to come up with another plan. He already had a plan in place. He already had a purpose in mind. And the whole of Genesis and the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and into the New Testament where we go today, all linked together. They're all part of this unveiling of God's story of salvation, of redemption. And we need to see how all of that links together. And so we come today to that part which we call incarnation. I'll explain that a little bit later on. But I want to start with a little bit of, um, a little bit of a history lesson. You know, anybody heard of a man called Marcion? Yeah, I'm expecting Don to nod. Anyone? Someone else has studied a bit of theology over there? Marcion was a heretic from the second century. And he belonged to a, a kind of a movement known as Gnosticism. And uh, one of the things that Marcion did was try to um, argue, he started questioning Orthodox church belief uh, about the Bible, about the scriptures. And he sort of said that actually the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, as his Hebrew name is, was different from the God of the New Testament, the Father of Jesus Christ. And so he was taking these two covenants and trying to kind of bash them together and say that they contradicted each other, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were different. Well, actually, when you read the New Testament, you have to believe and begin to see that actually Jesus and the apostles quote or allude to so much of the Old Testament that if you actually think there's the different gods, you'd have to take out all of those quotes. And actually, Marcion tried to do that. He tried to rewrite the New Testament, taking out parts of the Old. Well, other people have done that through history as well, where they don't like certain bits. I don't like the supernatural bits, we'll just take those out because, you know, we don't believe in that anymore. So, well, we have to take the old and the new together. I believe, because I believe Jesus and the apostles believed. If we go on to the next slide, we'll see how it's written by the apostle, the, the uh, writer to the Hebrews. He said, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's what we've been looking at in the series so far. God spoke to many prophets in various ways. But in these last days, that's a significant phrase there, last days. Hold on to that, we're going to see that come up again a few times. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. That's, that's the phrase we started with way back in week number one, isn't it? That actually it was Jesus whack there in the beginning with the Father and the Spirit making the universe, creating the world and humanity as we know it. And that's what we've seen, is that Jesus is still there, and that's what we need to recognize today. Marcion was trying to say that they're different gods, but the New Testament and the Old Testament doesn't see that conflict between these covenants, the Old Covenant and the New. God spoke, the same God spoke to the prophets, is the same God who sent his Son at this time in the New Testament, and both reveal the same Creator. Christians have, for many, many years, for a long time, in fact, affirmed that uh, Creator God didn't reveal Himself to human beings all at once. Uh, and this might help to actually account for many of the kind of differences we see between the Old and the New Covenant. And actually, it's, it's a thing that we call progressive revelation. 
looking for these theologians to nod their heads again. You know, <laughs> progressive revelation. That just means that as he, what God did, he didn't show himself, everything about himself all in one big go. What he did was to actually progressively reveal a bit more about himself, a bit more about his purposes. And each time he revealed something, it didn't contradict or deny that something that had already been... It was building up this picture. We are in this time now and can look back over all of those things. God has progressively revealed. We look back in this series, we can see how God has revealed himself, giving new information and understanding about who he is and what he does. In fact, God said to Adam, let's go back to the beginning, Adam fell in sin. God said he would come and crush the head of the evil one. There was the first hint of this salvation, this redemption plan in Genesis chapter 3. Not many people knew what that meant, but those first thoughts of this understanding, of this revelation were there. Then God spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise of salvation. And God spoke to Moses and added the law. And the law didn't overturn the promise that had been given to Moses. In fact, it reinforced Israel's hope in that promise. And then God spoke to the prophets. And I'm just summarising here. We've learned 20 weeks in this, haven't we? But God revealed himself more and more. And he spoke to the prophets more of his purposes. And then, as we saw this gap, that page between the Old Testament and the New, there was 400 years of prophetic silence. And Christmas is a burst of angels, isn't it? You know, there's, there's trumpets and there's angels and there's glory and there's flashing lights and everything comes down in one sense. Yes, why? Because God spoke through his Son becoming flesh. And last week we saw how John the Baptist paved the way. And God spoke through the followers of Jesus, his apostles, and the writings they had. They revealed who Jesus, they tried to explain, who this, who's this Jesus? What has he done? This salvation, if it's to be fully understood by us, we need to hold the old and the new together. You might be thinking, well, what's this got to do with today's subject? Well, hopefully you'll see that God is fulfilling his one big story, his big plan, and we need to be able to see how God is working that out. So as we come to Jamie's um, baptism today, this is part of God's big plan, God's big story, working his way through from eternity past into the age of the Bible into the age that is present now and into eternity future as well because when you get to the New Testament we've been thinking how there's this thing called the kingdom of God and um, when you read the New Testament if you read in Matthew 11 you really can do or Matthew 12 sorry you'll read verses there that seem to hint the kingdom has come but then if you read in Luke's, Luke 19, you'll see that the kingdom is still to come. And there's many different things, isn't there? The kingdom of God has come, and there are verses that say the kingdom of God is still to come. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking into this a little bit, because actually, it's a puzzling subject in one sense. It threw the Pharisees into confusion. It, uh, it kind of put, took John the Baptist off guard. Didn't quite know what was happening. He certainly caused one crowd of people to want to throw Jesus off a cliff and yet another crowd to want to make him king because they had different understandings. What's this kingdom then? It certainly threw the disciples of Jesus off kilter between Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't know, where. what is this kingdom? 
When is it coming? And behind it, you see, is what Jesus refers to as the mystery or the secret of the kingdom. It's something that is revealed, but not revealed. It is here, but it's not yet here. And in these coming weeks, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' teaching. Jack's going to preach next week from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And to show there's a higher way. You live by the Spirit. Jesus came uh, and, and taught parables. And Joe's going to deal with that in the family service. These parables of the kingdom, giving pictures for people to understand what the kingdom is like. There was the great I am statements, and Don's going to explain some of those to us. These are, this is, who is the king and how do we get there? And then we're going to look at some of the miracles of the kingdom. The power of God's kingdom that was present, not just then in the New Testament time, but in our time as well. You see, behind all of this is this mystery about the kingdom that has come partly now, but not fully now. There are hints to that in the Old Testament, but by and large, the Old Testament refers to this great thing called the Day of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that when you read things? The Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is coming. The Old Testament prophets refer the Day of the Lord. And they refer to this big thing called the Day of the Lord. But actually what we do know is that the Day of Lord would be, the Day of Lord would have something to do with God finally coming and dealing with sin and defeating his enemies and gathering his people together so that he could rule and reign among them and over them in peace. What the Old Testament prophets didn't really know is <coughs> that this day of the Lord, or the coming of the kingdom in a sense, was going to happen in two stages. It was going to happen with the first stage was the first coming of Jesus and the second stage would be the second coming of Jesus. Right? So, the arrival of the kingdom, in a way, came in a preliminary way, in a fulfillment way, because Jesus came and fulfilled all that was promised. Yes? All the things we've been looking to, Jesus came and fulfilled that. And yet, there's this period of time where it's not fully here yet. We're not in the kingdom in a fulfilled way, in, in a complete way, or what theologians call it, the consummation. It's not there in fulfillment, in its wholeness, shall we say. And that comes with the second coming. And so what the people uh, would refer to is the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Can you read those things? Yeah, so there you go. You've got the promise in the Old Testament. That's what we've been looking at. We had the, the first coming of Christ, which brings the kingdom now. The pro- prophets before had been referring to the day of the Lord, the last days, right? We are now in the last days, but then there'll be a time that will be the last day. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you have last days, there's got to be a last day. You know, last days has been happening since the first Christmas, when Jesus first came. But the last day hasn't happened yet because Jesus hasn't come yet. So there's this period of time when we are experiencing some of the blessings of the kingdom now, but we don't have them in completion. That's why we would say, you know, when we pray for healing. 
We believe the Spirit is present, God's power is present. He can heal and He wants to heal, but He doesn't always heal because we're not in the fulfillment, the completion, so we say, of God's kingdom. That's still to come. And it's only when we get to that place past the last day, when we go into eternity future, when we spend time with God in heaven, and what is, and we're reminded at the funeral about this this week, that's the place where there's no more tears and no more crying and no more pain and suffering. We have the kingdom now in part, but there is more to come. You see, what was the, what was the message of the prophets? The best is yet to come. Well, it's even part of our message that the best is still yet to come. We're enjoying what we have and we need to experience more of it, more of him, but there is still more to come. The day of the Lord is now. We're in the last days. The last day is still to come. And God gives us this window in our lives to recognize we're in the last days and how we respond to him in these last days before that last day because that last day there will be judgment and there'll be no freedom anymore to make your decision to follow Christ it's what you do in this period now that will affect eternity and that's when Jesus will come again the second time the first time he came into the history of the earth in the flesh. We're going to look at that in a bit of detail. The second time he will come and wind up history as we understand it in our finite way. Well, the three Gospels that will start the uh, New Testament are known as the Synoptics. That literally just means seeing the same thing. And if you've read the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they often tell the same kind of stories, different, slightly different perspectives and angles. But uh, the same... You know, the same Im- images are used, the same pictures and words are, are used in a way. They're trying to tell that story and they're all individually uh, in, in inspired by God. But when you get to the fourth gospel, John, the one I read to you just a minute ago, it paints a very different picture. John paints Jesus as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. And I want us to see three relevant truths from those passages, uh, that passage in John chapter 1, because this is our Christmas passage for the end of May. In the beginning was the Word, and you see Jesus is the pre-existent Word of God. He wasn't called Jesus before he became flesh. He was the eternal Logos, the eternal Son. Then we got the name Jesus. The name Jesus was given to him by Joseph, wasn't it? The angel told you, you call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus was the, the, the name we understand him, but he was always what was there before. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus always existed. He didn't just appear in Bethlehem. He was throughout the endless ages. He was the constant Word, the unchanging Word. As Hebrews uh, 13 would tell us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus not, was not just um, not in the beginning. Was he wasn't just there in the beginning. He says he was with God. The Word was with God. He's a communing Word. He's having fellowship with the Father, and yet he's a distinct person. 
Take that alongside the next phrase, and the word was God. So you've got this one who was there in the beginning, and he is with God. He's separate from the Father, but he was God. So you've got some fantastic teaching on the Trinity being revealed to us right there in this one verse. Just as we did way back in Genesis, when we saw that there was a Trinity, God, working within his own Godhead, creating the whole universe. Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He wasn't conjured up when things got out of control. He was there when God made man in his image. He was there before that, when that redemption plan was conceived. Before time began, Jesus, the Son, was with the Father and the Spirit. But Jesus is also a controversial word, in a sense, because when Jesus came preaching repentance, like John the Baptist did, in a sense, people thought he was a bit strange. When uh, he began to heal and perform miracles, they loved him. You know, they thought he was, he was great. You know, he's a prophet sent from God. He's fantastic. When he started speaking God's word with power, people thought, this is amazing. He's got such wisdom and such teaching. But when Jesus claimed to be equal from God, equal to God, they thought he was crazy. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He reckons himself to be equal with God. He says to Philip in John 14, anyone who has seen me, seen the Father. And people still grapple with that truth today. When you see Jesus, do you recognize who he really is? I think it's one of the most amazing things to understand, to get your head around. Jesus was both God and man. 100% God and 100% man. Now, how do you get your head around that? Hmm? J.I. Packer, great theologian. I don't know if he's still alive, actually. Is Jim Packer alive? Anyone tell me that? But uh, he called it an antinomy. Anybody know what an antinomy is? It's two truths, both things that are both true, but appear to contradict each other. And yet we hold them as both true. So Jesus is both God and he is both man. Right? How can they both be true? They are. (laughs) And the only way we can really grasp that is like looking at a railway track. Because when you look at the railway track, if you stand between the two rails, you know that there's the left and there's the right. But as you look at it down the way, they join up. So it appears, you know, it's the other way around. It appears to join up. We know it doesn't. But actually with these antinomy truths, there are two truths that are both true and both can be held in harmony. Like God is a sovereign God but he's granted man free will. Both true, and, we can't, and we've got to work out how that is. And so that's what I, we see here, that Jesus, and fundamentally, you see, anyone who wants to become a Christian, and this is, this is part of the bottom line. Can we go back? You're jumping ahead, please, Melvin. You know, um, you, you've got to recognise, if you want to be a Christian, there's two things you need to do. You need to recognise who Jesus is. It's not just about believing in God who created the world. 
Who is Jesus? Because he's the God-man. God who came in the flesh. Secondly, what did Jesus do? Not just he taught nice things and he healed a few nice people, hung out with some naughty people. (laughs) No, he died on a cross to save us. Jesus. He was the controversial, the constant word. He was the creative word, the energy when God created the word. We see that he spoke. Standing on the edge of nothingness, Jesus spoke and the world came into being. As Paul puts it in the, in Colossians. You can go on now, thank you. In the beginning, no, next, in the beginning was the, oh, we've got the same verse there, haven't we? Well, never mind. Let's go on to the next one then. <laughs> because Jesus is also what I call the personalized word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? This is eternal God, pre-existent before time began, became flesh. Do we understand the Christmas story is so profound that God laid aside his majesty and limited himself to the body of one man, a child, the creator in the hands of the created. See, Christmas isn't just a lot of frivolity. There is some really profound stuff going on that we need to understand and celebrate. Incarnation, when Jesus bodily manifests himself, a supernatural being is seen on earth. And he dwells amongst us. It literally means he pitched his tent. The old word there is to tabernacle. God was met in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was among the people. He came in the flesh. This is Jesus. Do we recognize Jesus? He is God, but he's personal, he's real. He took on flesh. He comes close. He's nearby. He stepped out of eternity onto the stage of humanity because he loves you and I so much. Sometimes I think I envy those people who saw Jesus and then I'm aware of the words that come at the end of John's Gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen me yet have believed. John actually did see the glory of Jesus. He was there with Peter and John when on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God was revealed. That must have been quite a sight. But actually the glory of God was revealed in an even greater way when Jesus was hung on a cross. And his body was broken. Because it was the demonstration of his love for people who didn't deserve it. All of humanity. He took on flesh in order that as a man he could die for mankind. It was a personalised word. 
And then thirdly, I want to point out that Jesus is a proclaiming word. He says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, Jesus came to make God known to us, to reveal him to us. That's the wonder of Christmas. Everything Jesus did was an effort to unfold more of this revelation of God that started way back in the Old Testament and was progressing through. Humanity needed to see that God was not just a lawgiver, but he was a lover. He was not just a judge, he was the justifier. He was not just someone stern and hateful, but someone who was loving and kind. Jesus did that through his life and his death. He dwelt amongst us. He felt as you feel. He's touched with our weaknesses. You see, I know some Christians, I was talking to another pastor recently, and they said, I don't really connect with Jesus. You see, I do. I connect with Jesus. <laughs> you know? Some people like their idea of God. God is just out there. God is kind of big and powerful and mighty and kind of big ethereal spirit somewhere over the world, in the universe. But I connect with a Jesus, the God who became a man, and I don't see him physically, but I know he's there. I know he's real. And I know he's not there in his body anymore. He was only in his body for 33 years on this earth. But he's coming again. <laughs> but I experience him by his spirit. And I, I can understand Jesus as being my best friend. And if I could say anything, and I don't know, have the words to, after all the years of trying to, to convey it, I want people to know Jesus. Because, you know, lots of people say, I believe in God. But actually, as I said, if you've got to become a Christian, it's, do you know Jesus? You can't deny God in the flesh. In fact, the New Testament speaks against that. Those people who were following demons still wanted to deny that. Jesus is God who came in the flesh and who died on a cross as our substitute. And as we said last week of those who got baptised, we'll say again of Jamie as he gets baptised this week, we'll say of John as he gets baptised next week, you know, none of these folks are saying, hey, look at me, I've made it. They're actually saying, hey, look at Jesus, he's done it for me. And it's through his death and his rising again that my sins are forgiven. And they come to respond to what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Because Jesus came to proclaim light. We read it in those verses. He revealed the truth of God to people who were in darkness. He said, I've come to give you light. To illuminate the way 
because you don't know which way we're going. You see, that light, you know, can cause us to repent of our sins or cause us to reject Jesus Christ. One will give us eternal salvation and one will leave us in eternal darkness. Thank God for the light that you and I have received. That you have today, and maybe even tomorrow, but I'm not so sure, because I don't know what tomorrow holds. But you have this time in order to be able to respond to that light and willingly come to him. But Jesus came not just to illuminate, he came to give life, to proclaim life. The fulfilment of all the Old Testament and what it had been building towards. He came to his people. Remember as we've seen it, these chosen people, these Israelites, these Jews, these people who had the word of God, these people who had the temple, these people that were in the land that God had chosen. He came to those that were his own, and I think it's one of the saddest verses in the New Testament. He came to his own, and his own refused him, rejected him, didn't recognize him. You know, I meet people and I talk to people over and over again. Oh, when I, if I saw God, I'd worship him, I'd know him. Oh no, <laughs> plenty of people saw Jesus and they rejected him and they didn't recognize him. John makes it clear that actually there is good news. Anyone who does respond positively to the light of God and comes to Jesus to find this new life receives Christ in their life. We often have that cute little phrase, you know, just welcome Jesus into your heart. I don't know, I don't know what that means really. You know? God actually, Jesus welcomes you into his. <laughs> but I know what, you know, we say those things, but you know, I'm, I'm wanting God to come into my life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in a few moments' time and I'm going to say, is there anyone who wants to invite Jesus into their life? Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to come into my life because I want to follow you because that's after all is what we would need to be, become disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just belief in our head, but the changing of our lives. Walking on with him now and forever. I receive your spirit into me, into my body, into my life. And I think there's a crucial phrase I often pray then, as best as I know how, I give you my life. Because <laughs> of that first step, I don't know what that means. What is God going to do with me if I say I give you my life? Years and years ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was about nine years old. Oh, I was a smart aleck in the Sunday school and quizzed all the teachers and gave them a hard time. I was a smart aleck in church and gave my pastor a hard time. I used to go and knock on his door with a list of questions. And I got to mid-teens, late teens, and I rejected everything, threw it all out. I even threw my Bible out the bedroom window into the street. I decided I wanted to follow the world. I want to do what everybody else does. I don't want to be just religious as I saw it then. 
but I couldn't deny the truth of who Jesus was and what he had done for me. That's what, that's what will grip me. God won't let you go when you've come to deal with those questions. And several years of trying to be as wicked as I possibly could <laughs> and ending up with a criminal record and going to university to drop out and all sorts of stuff. I met God again halfway up the stairs of a house in Southampton about three in the morning, shaking my fist and saying, God, why don't you just leave me alone? And it's then the Holy Spirit touched me and I realized I'm fighting God. Who's going to win? Hmm? There and then my life had to change. And I became a follower, a disciple. It wasn't just belief, there was something had changed within me. I'd repented of my sin and I invited Jesus and I wanted to follow. I didn't know then that I'd be here doing this. Goodness knows. (laughs) Last thing I would have thought of. But actually, when we receive the life of Christ, everything in our lives will change if we honestly seek to follow him. John makes it clear that this new life doesn't come by natural birth. right? Not because you've got Christian parents. Didn't do you any good, did it, Jamie? Sorry about that. I mean mean that in the nicest way. (laughs) It did do you some good. But but it didn't make you a Christian because your your parents were Christians. It's not, you don't become a Christian, you know, this new life doesn't come because you did good works or you gave money to the offering. You know, that doesn't do anything. Not by the will of the flesh. Not by someone else's work, the will of man. Only through the will of God. So what is the will of God? And Jesus makes it So, so clear. In John chapter 6, he says, My Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Someone say, Amen. Amen. That's the way, isn't it? You cannot get any clearer than that. God's will is that everyone who looks at Jesus, the pre-existent, personal, proclaiming Word of God, who's present with us now, and if we look to Him I don't mean with our physical eyes, but with all our hearts and lives, you shall have, shall, positive present tense, have eternal life. And I will raise him up. When? The last day. Isn't that great? What's God's will is? For us to see Jesus and recognize who he is and receive him and he will give us life and raise us up on that last day. In the last days, we can respond because the last day hasn't happened yet. But we can know with assurance what will happen after that. So, what about you? Have you ever met Jesus that way? Is he just a character of stories? Christmas in a manger, Easter on a cross, bit of religion, five ounces of religion on a Sunday morning, 
or is he real and personal and present, powerfully working in your life? Why don't we just close our eyes? I'd like to pray. I've said, if you want to become a Christian, you need to recognize and answer these questions. Who really is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. And what did he do? He left heaven and came to earth and died in my place, died in your place. Because we've done wrong. And God needed a sacrifice for sin. It wasn't just going to be swept under the carpet. So Jesus died for us. He died for you. And if you would admit that you are a sinner that needs a saviour, and you acknowledge that Jesus is God in the flesh and he's died for you, then I would invite you to receive him. Because that's what it said in these words, isn't it? In John, to all who receive him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And the children of God dwell with their Father for eternity. As the penny dropped, maybe you'd like to pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. I thank you that you came and died for me. I receive your Holy Spirit as best as I know how I give you my life. Did you pray that? If you prayed that for the very first time or you prayed it in a sense of renewing your relationship with God then I'd love you to come and tell me As we sing these next few songs and go into the coffee break before we witness this baptism of Jamie. Someone else has recognised this purpose and plan of God was for you to be here today to respond to him. Then come and tell us. Father, would you apply this message that we just recognise your plans and your purposes throughout the Scriptures and how it all fits together. And we trust you in these last days, looking forward to your return. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Amen. The worship group is going to lead us in a couple of songs before we...